This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Rum, do you hear something? Yeah, what is that? It's a bird. No, it's a plane. No, it's not that. Ooh, it's the best of the buzz with Bill. Is that right, eh? It's a good sign of things to come. Commentary on trending headlines with veteran AMI producer Bill Shackleton. Well, now. Billy! I say Shack! Yep, I'm back. Apparently, a, a Hamilton teenager is, is part of a group of people challenging the um the Rights of Rights and Freedoms Act. They want to lower the voting age. So basically, the voting from from 12 to 17, they want it they want it lowered to to that sort of group. They're saying, and I agree with that. I'm you might be thinking it's a little bit young, isn't it? 12, isn't that a little young? But maybe maybe what the what they're doing is they believe the technology gives them a better insight into issues. And I think kids today being able to use Twitter and being able to, I mean, if you believe everything you read, but I think me, there are issues like COVID, um, climate change. It seems to be that the young people are coming out of the woodwork and they want change in at least those two areas. So We've had conversations with Danielle McLaughlin about um, voting age and and the restrictions around different things like this and wondering, you know, contemplating on why. Why do we have the legal age for voting as 18 and why can't we do uh, younger or anything like that? Do you think that this is – COVID stuff is maybe a current concern, but after COVID, what else? Yeah, I – I don't, I mean, COVID, yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be other things, I guess, that come um, to the, to the forefront, but part of, part of this is a traditional thing where, you know, voting rights in Canada were allegedly you had to be a a property owner and then they, 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 you know, gave voting rights to women and then they Mm. gave voting rights to, you know, special interest groups, people with disabilities. And I just think that part of that is maybe the governments don't feel that when you're, you're, you're a bit young to know the issues, but I, I mean. And it's tough because the government wants you, wants school, yeah. wants educators to start talking about it early. And and I'll be honest, Bill, when I was a kid, I was very aware. And again, I stop and think, okay, was it because I was a media person? I liked watching the news for whatever, listening to the radio. So maybe I heard all about what, you know, what was going on, what Trudeau was doing or what, you know, Clark was up to. Like, and again, was I that deeply interested? But I felt, and I'm not sure where it came from, that I had an obligation as a, as a person living in Canada to know about the political people, what was what was going on, and to be ready to vote even when I was too young. Well, and and of course that was more than I knew. When 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 my parents said so and so lost his seat, <clears throat> I said, "How can they lose their seat?" I mean, somebody tossed him out of his chair. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't know what that meant. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> when, when would you have felt that you took the interest? So I know in schools, especially when you get to your grade six, seven, sometimes they'll they'll have the civics classes or whatever and start working on on that. I don't know what the heck it's called now, politics or whatever. Well, we, we did we did a mock parliament, and, yeah. and that's when, you know, we talked about the issues of the day, 
and we had we formed what three parties I guess and then <clears throat> every every day and we made announcements at the at, in the dining room about what our policies were and we encouraged people to vote and the idea was to teach us the importance of voting the responsibility that the responsibility yeah. And the student council, the thing you, that would, I'd be... you would think the same, right? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we, we get access to voting within schools or at least the the uh, idea of politics and things like that. And we, of course, start learning, right? Like civics class and such. Um, but I think that the bigger thing in this article, at least, is what they're talking about, like the people who are 12 to 18 who are talking about having, wanting the, the right to vote at such a young age, uh, we consider it a young age, is because... They're being um, influenced by the things going on in the world right now, right? Like the the racism, the the violence against women, COVID nineteen, uh, all these different things. Even just within our political atmosphere on how politicians are handling some of this stuff in, in environment and climate change, uh, young people are really, really showing up and feeling frustrated as well as everybody else. But the problem is they don't get a vote. No, and I would submit to you that if we look to the 1920s, 40s, and so on, young people knew as well because parents were so active that way and you sat around the table and you listened to the news and you were told by dad whether your allegiance was to who mom and dad vote well not mom but dad voted for you had that knowledge you spoke of teachers talked about all oh, this Pearson government or whatever it might have been um I think there was far more of that. Now we've gotten into this. There's so much to distract people, but also I want to vote for the right person. Okay, well, get informed, but also accept they're not going to do everything right for you. They are going to make, quote, mistakes, unquote. They are going to break, quote, promises they've made, unquote. It's it's the nature of, and I know a lot of time people say, well, what's the lesser of evils? And I'm not sure, sure we should look at our political people that way, um, but I think we also need to to be realistic and teach that in, in getting ourselves informed. And maybe that's why so many people get this. Well, why bother? You know, because they're still striving for the perfect candidate. That's, that's right. It will be interesting to see how this turns out. Um, the one thing about the article that was interesting is they're challenging at the, at the provincial level. And then I don't know why they would do that when it's federal, but yeah. maybe somebody else does. Let's move to the next one from the Canadian Press. So basically, catalogs are making, well, they haven't made a big comeback. They're still with us. And um, you might have thought, you know, because of the, the digital age, um, you know, you, you might have thought that it was that they would go by the wayside. Coupled with the fact that the U.S. Postal Service has put a hefty tax on those people that the retailers that send catalogs partially because of the you know they're they're hard to handle they take they take up more space and it's just they 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 involve more sort of hands on to get them into the mailbox or whatever or to print them but um 
there's something about these catalogs. And when you think of, you know, one of the factors is that the, you know, Apple has, you know, you can turn those, your, your advertising off on your phone and, and you can, so basically it has made advertising much more difficult for advertisers to use the digital environment. Um, a lot of people can't use the internet. A lot of people, for instance, find the internet too cluttered. And there's something nostalgic about a catalog. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like what you, 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 um, you know, what do you dog ear the pages and you go through the pages and basically it stays on your dining room table. Whereas if you, you're on the website and you click off the website, you're done. But the catalog is always with you and it encourages you to shop more. Mm -hmm. And apparently people, they have found that people that use catalogs are more loyal um, than the, to retailers. So it's, well, like, <clears throat> yeah. I like what they said about, um, you know, you kind of either look for something very specific when you're shopping online, yeah, right? Ooh, right? I want this brand, this thing, uh, and I'm going to go straight to the link that gives me this product, click, click, buy. Or you're kind of looking and then whatever you find, you that might be what you go with because of so much option. Like when you're shopping online, it just never ends. Um, whereas catalogs, it is a pretty catered way of looking at things. Uh, to me though, I don't really have the sentimentality for this just because of the, the vision thing. Like I don't, of course, I don't of really course. look at catalogs. No, <laughs> you know no, what I mean? No. I, I could understand though, the psychology of it and um, the, the reason why they're still around. And even actually as things get more and more online heavy, why people would want to specifically turn to a physical catalog. Because like you're saying, Bill, it just feels like a breath of fresh air from all the online shopping. But if you're talking to a whole bunch of blind or low vision people, I don't know if we'd have the same reaction I, for I, obvious I don't, I don't, reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other thing that the article mentioned, which was interesting, was it's serendipity. So basically, you when you look at a catalog, you might not look be looking for something specific, but then you might find something, oh, I guess I better buy that. Yes. So it makes it's you the exploration more. part. Yeah, that's I think so. Yeah, because how many times have you like, for example, if we were on Amazon, right, Brock, and you you found the uh, portable charger that you want, and then after you click add to cart, under it it'll say related items, and then it'll give you yeah, twenty thousand right. other portable chargers that look and sound exactly the same in the same price range. Well, why are you going to go look for another one if you already put the first one to cart, right? It's not the same as like just flipping through a catalog. And then if you click that one. Guess what happens? You click another relatable item. You click a relatable mm -hmm. item, then you get a relatable item on top of the relatable item, and yeah. you're there forever, and you're 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 good. The only the only other comment I was gonna say, guys, was the only time I ever use catalogs is when I'm doing Christmas shopping or when I prefer True. I prefer catalogs, and I get someone else to read them because I I can't see them, but. I get people to dog ear and circle things they want because otherwise, you know, uh, my fiance comes to me and says, I want this. I want that. I like, I like this. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. And then all of a sudden you go and you do shopping and it's like, what did she say again? I can't, I, I can't remember. Right. And then you just feel that way. But I would much prefer to do online shopping, but for Christmas shopping, I would prefer the catalog.
this is an interesting one. Hockey Night in Canada can save, can help save a language. So basically what's happening here is um, a Cree by the name of Clarence Iron is from Canoe Lake in northern Saskatchewan. And basically what, what's happening here is he's going to be calling six NHL games next month and in Cree which is going to be interesting to see how it sounds, what it actually sounds like. And basically, uh, the sports network and the Aboriginal network are going to carry these games. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this guy. First of all, he feels that the Korean language is being lost. Um, so he wants, he thinks that, you know, people that are into hockey will tune in and, mm -hmm. and maybe capture some of the, you know, the the, the 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 magic that this language has. So this guy grew up in a residential school, and apparently the the only way he could uh, keep his language, keep up with it, is to to talk with his classmates in secret. This would end to himself in secret, because people would you know make fun of him. So basically he used to call, stand by the rink while they played hockey and call, and, and call the play-by-play. -play. Um, and that's why, that's how we got interested in, in being a broadcaster. And he's also called games for Rogers Hometown Hockey. And of course, I know what that is. So I'll be interested to see how that actually works. This is... Um, I think that... An in it's an interesting take because Hockey Night in Canada, this isn't the first time they have, you know, uh, broadcasted in different languages. The first no, one it's not. Uh, was Punjabi. And then they were going to do uh, a few other ones, which was canceled uh, due to the pandemic. And they haven't done it again since. So I love the fact that Hockey Night in Canada is the platform that steps forward and says, you know, we're going to do this because I think it's, all these languages, a lot of people don't know even our thing. So to broadcast it as a, a part of a, a national broadcast really gets the exposure where it should be in, for the broadcast. And you wonder how many people even don't even know what Cree is. I mean, it, it's, well, yeah, you're that's right. That's the thing. Yeah. And, and honestly, like I see a lot of love in uh, an initiative like this and an article like this too, just hearing straight from him because this is one of the ways to bridge the gap, right? Like he he is, yeah. you know, stepping up and saying, yeah, I went to residential school. Yeah, I had to talk to myself in Korea and people around me in secret because, and I'm sure, Billy, the consequences were more than just people making fun of him. Like we oh, know yeah, how serious and devastating the, the experiences in residential school was. But they're taking a long-lived tradition like Hockey Night in Canada, you know, Canadian, and, and, and potentially um, – non-indigenous like this is not something that we we look at and say yeah this i associate with indigenous cultures but they're taking it and they're putting cree into it and i think that this is a huge step like it's a huge step in in the bigger picture for the the truth and reconciliation that we've been talking about over and over again for the past year or so it's so incredible i i think that this is going to leave a, a a tiny but very very powerful mark and the other thing I think is important that he's basically saying you can do it. I mean, he did it. So I think he's promoting not only himself, of course, but the idea that you can do 
if you, you know, if you want to do it and, and hopefully people, indigenous people will realize and, 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 and understand that they have a talent and they can use this mm-hmm. and, and pr- pursue their own dreams, basically. Absolutely. And just like the the making space, you know, like we don't have to tighten the circle where people feel left out of it. And those people being the indigenous people of Canada, right? Like this is some an example of people, us, you know, stepping aside and saying, okay, let's welcome back the people who basically created the circle back into it. Um, I, I just think it's an incredible initiative. This one, Sleeping Woman's Eyes, um, um, Eyelids Lifted to Unlock iPhone. So this is a really scary story. Um, If you use facial recognition, um, I don't. I don't know whether you guys do or not. I don't because it's just sometimes it doesn't work. And but but this story, I mean, facial recognition is touted by a lot of people as being, you know, the, the, the best thing since sliced bread. Well, it turns out that it's not. Um, a in China, what happened was a um, a woman well, was asleep in a hospital, and her ex boyfriend um, went in and basically um, took took her hand, touched the screen to unlock it, and then used use her facial ID to to actually unlock the phone. And basically, what and she he stole twenty five thousand dollars. And moral wow. of the story is, is yeah, is this really, I mean, facial recognition has to be improved. I mean, why not use a passcode so that can't happen? But apparently it took them a couple of years to find out and the woman's getting her money back, but not all of it. So it here's just the thing to too, show. right? Yeah. And with all of these different things that come up, Billy, the first thing we think of is what? Convenient. Right. That was the same thing with other biometrics like fingerprint scanning. Uh, now with facial recognition, all kinds of stuff. We're thinking, OK, it's secure, but it's still convenient. So we don't have to, like, unlock our phones with swipe anymore. This is more secure than that. Um, but we think it's a nice and as it continues to get more secure, it still get, continues to stay convenient. But then you hear shocking and terrifying stories like this and you're like, oh, no. But my question is. You said you're, you don't use um, facial recognition anyway, but to you, Brocky, if you do, I don't know. But would this be enough of a scare, like reading a story like this in the news, for you to disable facial recognition and go back to just using PIN? Okay. Um, yeah. I would, yes, I, yeah I, go ahead. Yes, I do use a face, facial recognition. And the first thing that came to my mind was I want to know how, like, what is this person doing that I'm not do like because when i'm using facial recognition like i'm doing like the moving the phone around to try to get it in the right angle and this guy was able to just like get it while she was sleeping like i i don't understand like even when i have my glasses off and for those of you that don't know i wear glasses it doesn't work because i did it with my glasses on and i always think to myself 
I have the same pair of eyes. Like what what happened there? I don't I don't get it. But I struggled so hard getting into work anyway that I I this this is surprising to me, really. Well, I think what she she um I guess her eyelids twitched enough um to to enable him to to unlock it. I mean, I of course. Yeah. The, okay, so there's this feature, right, where I can't even remember off the top of my head what it's called, but it's where it it's you turn off the focus so that you don't have to be um hyper paying attention to where you're looking in order for the phone to unlock. Like as long as you have your face towards the phone, even if your eyes are not necessarily open completely or looking right at the sensor, uh, it'll still detect that this is your face and unlock your phone for you. And this is really helpful in cases of low vision and blindness because you're not sure if you're looking right at the the sensor. Exactly. So you turn this feature on or off, I guess, whatever the the right way to do it is. And then (laughs) stuff like this happens where someone's able to unlock your phone without you even recognizing sometimes. Holy yeah, crap. yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, I was just. So I was. Go ahead, Bill. I this manufacturers, I think, have to make it more. Um, maybe that may, maybe that you can only do it when you're awake. Um, so I guess there are mm-hmm. things they have to they have to do to make this a little this safe. A lot, a lot well, more safer that- than it is. Yeah, and it said that, uh, like, right at the end of the article, that manufacturers should be making sure that people are conscious to be using biometrics. Yeah, like, ex- isn't that a given? Yeah. Come on. This isn't um, a Christmas article, but it is. It's a not a very nice one. Apparently, an, an Italian Roman Catholic diocese bishop um, basically has come under the gun for basically telling parishioners that Santa Claus doesn't exist. And I find it, for, for me personally, I am, I have. Uh, kids in the family who are sort of um you know they're 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 wondering whether you know santa is or isn't or who santa is or isn't and when at what point do you tell them or do you let them find out on their own um that you know what, what i'm trying to say and the second question is is technology ruining the spirit of christmas when my niece wants to catch santa in the act so she's got a camera and she wants to catch Santa in the act. So is this is is this something that you know when when you couple this to I mean is this ruining ruining it for kids? Didn't the uh, bishop go as far as to say that the red suit that Santa wears yeah. is <laughs> created right. by Coca-Cola by for Coca-Cola, publicity? Which, yeah, That's yeah. just mean. Come it on. Is, it, yeah, it, it is. And you know what? What the article did say that he's trying to promote the fact that Christmas isn't necessarily buying presents and, and gift giving in this, which I think he's, mm-hmm. which, you know, depending on your belief or whatever, 
Um, he, I mean, he may have meant well, but boy, it didn't go over very well. Yeah, and I honestly, like, I'm so curious as to what Danielle McLaughlin would say about this because she's really made me, you know, step outside of my own shoes and think, okay, freedom of expression, right? Like, you're allowed to say whatever you want, um, honestly, and and your religious beliefs are are what they are, and it's not the bishop's responsibility to make sure that the quote illusion of Santa Claus. Um, is present for the kids until whoever decides the kids or the parents of the kids themselves decide that it's time for kids to know that they're that Santa's not real. But it just it doesn't sit well because it seems really cruel, and all these parents were really upset about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I still can't stop laughing about the red suit, though. But yeah, but I know. The, I mean, but yeah. but here's the thing: it's the spirit of. Christmas like I, I'm I'm almost 31 years old and I still love getting gifts labeled with Santa on it it's to me it's always been growing up as a kid it's the spirit of Christmas the spirit of Santa etc and and I get even though I know the truth and all that it's still the spirit of Christmas in and of itself and if it's alive in your heart then then it's fine but for someone to come right out and say that the suit was, you know, made by Coca-Cola. Like, come on, it's a bit much. Yeah, and maybe maybe parents have to be a little, really innovative um, to 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 work to make because um, how Santa is not going to come down the chimney. Um, so parents have to be. Um, I mean, they could they really have to dress up or someone else has so the kid doesn't recognize who they are. So I guess it becomes more. It might become more of a challenge. Um, to keep this thing a secret, to keep it alive as long as they want to, as long as they think they should. you piano technicians and music lovers in the crowd, Chopin's last piano gets its 19th century features back. This is an interesting story about a piano that was made in 1848, and uh, it was the last piano Chopin ever played before his death. Would you like to get your hands on that as a former piano tuner, Bill? Oh boy, you know, I mean, boy, and, and what basically what's going on there is, is a guy in Texas that is restoring it. So in 1849, well, basically after he died, he donated it to a friend who donated it to his sister. So it was, it's been sitting in the, the uh, museum, the Chopin Museum in Warsaw. In, 1950, in the 1950s, they did a, a renovation on it. And what they did was they, they replaced the strings with the modern strings and but now what they're what this guy is doing is re, totally reconditioning it to the way it would have been done in 1848. And yeah, what for, for anybody that's what's the thing going to sound like? I mean, mm. it's really, you know. Well, even to think of 
when the restoration or the work that was done on it in the 1950s, it's 110 years old at that point. And to now move past that time, yeah. uh, we're, we're still you know a couple of decades from it being 200 years old, but but not not that far by about what's that 17, 18 years. So 17 yeah. years. So. To me, that's amazing when we think, let's go backwards now and restore this to the way and to the sound it would have had in 1848. Mm, cool. Yeah. Well, apparently the piano was, was um, you know, uh, played, but it was never used for concerts. And when they restored, it isn't going to be con- used for concerts. It's going to be used for research and perhaps replication, although I hope nobody replicates it because, I mean, how can you replicate a thing that's like that? It's too... It's too precious to do, you know, it's too precious. So, as I said, you're a former piano tuner. If you actually were brought into where that piano is now, Bill, um, wh- what would you do? Would you want to look at those workings? Look at the workings and basically the sound. Um, what was it, you know, when, when, what's it going to sound like? I mean, replacing the, putting on the original wire strings, which they would have had, and repairing the cracks in the soundboard, which, of course, is what this guy is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting if they, if it gets on on YouTube, what it actually sounds like. Wow, I bet they could do that. Yeah. Oh gosh, even w- existing. Uh, yeah. Do you recall the oldest piano you tuned? My mother's had my mother had one that was completely rebuilt. It was about it was about seventy eighty years old. And that would have been back what around it was seventy eighty years old in nineteen eighty eighty two when you were piano tuning. Yeah, the last one, piano I ever tuned was was uh, nineteen ninety. Before I started here. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've seen some old ones. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. And interesting what you'd want to, you know, looking at those workings, what you'd look for. Bill Shackleton is a usual suspect on our show, Kelly and Company. You can catch Billy sneaking around the studio on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for more of the buzz. All right. See ya. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.